This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. It is episode number 149. Uh, the very first thing I want to say is if you're looking at this and wondering where episode 148 went, since obviously we skipped from 147 to 149 here on the Voices of Wrestling Network and on the uh, Omakase free feed, the answer is 148 is on the Patreon. So that was our very first exclusive to Patreon full episode of Omakase. It was another five matches episode with uh, Mr. Alan Cunahan from PW Torch. It was a pretty great episode, if I don't say so myself, and I think you'll enjoy it. So definitely check out the Patreon if you want to see that episode with me and Alan. It's at www.patreon.com slash wrestling omakase. Wrestling does fit there, so uh, shout out to Patreon. Um... In the, the meantime, of course, and we, uh, you can also get, by the way, every single episode so far of the Tanahashi Okada series that I've been doing. Um, we're all the way up to, the next one will be King of Pro Wrestling 2013, so we're like already almost halfway done. So that's pretty, you know, watching them all in order, it's been pretty fun. So definitely check out the Patreon for all of that, and also our New Japan Cup 2020 Pick'ems too. We did that with uh, Voices Wrestling contributor Tyler on the Patreon. Uh, and if you enjoy these five matches episodes, which this is obviously one of them, uh, pretty soon the Patreon will be, I don't know if it'll be the only place to hear it, it'll be the only place to hear it consistently, because we are going to move back to covering uh, more current wrestling in July, probably starting with like Dominion slash the New Japan Cup finals, but we'll see. Uh, but yeah, I, I still do have a few more uh, free episodes of the five matches including the one you're listening to but eventually the idea is that they will be mostly only on the patreon so with all that out of the way it's time to introduce my guest uh thank you for sitting here quietly while i plug the patreon and welcome back to the show taylor hello hi i was gonna say that this episode will be so good that you'll have a lot of re-listenability on this in when you stop the five matches that listeners will can will be able to come back to this one over and over again to uh to get that five match high or they should sign up for five dollars a month and get the five (laughs) match high with new episodes actually that's what they should do but yes patreon.com slash wrestling hi taylor what have you been up to 
Oh, you know, it's been, I was just thinking, it's been quite a while since I've been on this, uh, been on this program. Has it been six months? Yeah. When was the last time I was on here? It was, uh, were you on one of the year in review episodes? I don't even remember. Maybe. The- uh, I was on the Joshi year in review. That might have been the last time. Yeah, so that would be like November 2019. So. Yeah, it's been, uh. After you were, after you were like on a million episodes last year, so. I know. But you went and got your own podcast, so you've been busy. I did. I had to fill the hole in my heart of the, the podcast hole in my heart by starting my own so yeah that's what i've done uh, but glad to be here happy to be here to talk about some uh pretty great matches i i have to say so the you know the whole thing with five matches is we're, we're going through all the other voice wrestling podcasts and obviously you are now a voice wrestling podcast host so you know you're a host, the host of jumping bomb audio along with aaron bentley uh so we're i think we're like halfway done with the podcast after this Trying to think who's left. I think it's like Shake Them Ropes, uh, Quiz Night, Five Star Match Game, Everything Elite, Open the Voice Gate, and that'll be the next free episode I have Kay scheduled for next week. Uh, who's never been on this show, amazingly, despite the fact that he he and I were once co-hosts on Open the Voice Gate. But that's his, the next week will be his first Omakase. And then I think that might be it, unless I'm forgetting someone's podcast and they're going to get very angry at me. But uh, I don't know. Can you think of any other one? Oh, you'd have to know, I guess, who who we haven't done yet. I, yeah, I also would have to know off the top of my head, have memorized the guest, thing, <laughs> the guest list that you've already had. I'm trying to. Uh, let me. I'm going to look it up because I'm curious who I just uh, who I just pissed off. Let's and see. as you found out from uh, Voices of Wrestling Quiz Night, my memory is uh, not all that great. Yeah. What were you? What What did you like bomb at? I don't even remember. Uh, tag team, 80s and 90s Canadian and American tag team names. Oh, see, see now you're not a patron, which first of all, shame on you. But if you are, if you did sign up, you could hear Alan make fun of you. What? He, oh. he makes, he makes, well, no, I definitely will. Sign up. <laughs> he makes fun of you on the episode. So, look, all uh, I'm saying is tall and short <laughs> would have been a better name. Do you know who Kevin I? Nash okay, I actually, I sincerely feel bad for who I forgot. I forgot Andrew. Music of the Mat wow. is the other one that. Uh, the, I, in my head, I was like, there's one more I haven't done yet. And it was poor Andrew Rich. So, shout out to Andrew if he's listening. Uh, you'll be on eventually too, buddy. The ones who, like, host by themselves have the advantage here. Or the disadvantage, if you want to look at it as, like, being on the show as a punishment. But, yeah. I mean, I'll eventually have to have Andrew, Robin, and Joe Gagne on because they're the only host of their shows. Whereas, like, Everything Elite, I have three to choose from and, you know... Shake them up, save two to choose from. But that'll be like, we're almost through the whole tour. We're like more than halfway. So, you know, it's been fun. Especially like the people who don't normally do anything like this. Like, uh, like Brandon from WrestleNomics was really fun because he never really talks about like what wrestling he likes or anything, you know? And uh, like even like Liam from Wednesday War Games, I mean, all they normally do is break down. NXT and AEW TV every week, which, uh, first of all, I'm very sorry <laughs> that they have to do that, but, uh, you know, it was really fun getting them on here and let them talk about some good wrestling for a change, but you're, you, on the other hand, this is not going to be that much different from what you normally talk about, so, because you have a lot of Joshi. Yeah, and I picked a lot, you know, I was going through, uh, picking my three matches, I almost chose two, two Joshi matches for my um, 
solid picks. I don't know what you'd call them. And then a different match for the fan vote. But I decided I would trust the listeners of this podcast uh, to not let me down and pick my second Joshi match. And they did. They picked it. So they did not let me down. They didn't let you down. That's true. Uh, So what what else have you been up to here in uh, New York? There's so much going on. Um, uh, mostly sitting in my house, um, doing a lot of movement between my living room and my bedroom, uh, is my main, that's my main excitement, deciding when I'm going to sit in my living room versus when I'm going to sit in my bedroom or even sometimes in my kitchen. Um, so that's really been the main excitement, but no, watching, um, still watching a lot of wrestling. I know, John, that you've mentioned that, um... You haven't really enjoyed the uh, empty arena era, I guess I'll call it. And Mm -hmm. I haven't been over the moon about it, but I have been watching a lot. There's been a lot of Joshi. um, Now I have a Joshi podcast, so I'm watching all of the Joshi empty arena stuff with Ice Ribbon running shows twice a week now and Choco Pro and Seedling just had a show yesterday, their first show back. So uh, that, you know... Still keeping up with the wrestling, still watching, still watching a good amount. So that's been filling up my time. Um, I can't remember what I was gonna say now. I guess, like, like you said, basically the Joshi, is, you know, or not just the Joshi, but everything in general. The empty arena, I haven't been a big fan of. But now, what I want to know is what these Japanese promotions coming back, but having this strange rule against cheering loudly. Like, what the fuck is that gonna be like? Well, it was very weird because Ice Ribbon did a show yesterday um, that had fans. I don't remember what the limit was. It might have been 50 fans. I think it was at Yokohama Radiant Hall. And it was very strange watching it because I could see the people sitting there. But it was almost like there was no one there because essentially what Ice Ribbon has been doing in this empty arena time is they have put the wrestlers ringside to, you know, be like, hey, go, you know, whatever they say, to do the yells, do the cheers. And they were still doing that at this show, but the actual audience that was there was fairly quiet. Yeah. So it felt weirdly, and the lights were all off, so you couldn't really see the audience that well, so it still sort of felt like an empty arena show, even though there were, I mean, 50 people is not a huge amount of people. But... You know, it still felt sort of like an empty arena show. I saw a picture of, I don't know if you saw it, of the Freedoms show that they did at Shinkiba um, a couple days ago. It looked very bizarre with people so spread out there because usually you go to Shinkiba, you know, John, you and I have both been there. I mean, they pack people in there at times if it's a popular show. And so it was very odd to see the pictures of it looking fairly empty, but still with an audience in there. Yeah, it's going to be weird for the rest of the year, at least, I think. I think, like, this will be the new normal until we have, like, a vaccine or at least some kind of treatment or something. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm glad I went to Japan three times before <laughs> this shit took place, I guess is all I can say. Cause, yeah, uh, and we were there a year exactly a year ago. Yeah. Uh, we were there, and I was just thinking, I was talking with Albert, who's been on this podcast. I was saying, it's a good thing we went last year and not this year. Because yeah. if we would have chosen this time, we wouldn't have been there. We wouldn't have gone. Yeah. I mean, I had my trip in October where I already have the flight, and uh, I am not expecting to be on a flight to Japan in four months. 
It is not something I'm expecting to happen. Like in this case, in my head, like I'm I'm hoping maybe they'll at least have plans to reopen by then, so I could try to push it back. Like maybe go to Wrestle Kingdom or something, whatever Wrestle Kingdom ends up being with like, you know, half empty. But uh, yeah, it's it's something. It's a weird time. But. Yeah, it's it's quite you know it's just sort of with everything. I mean, rest this wrestling uh, life, whatever. It's sort of a day at a time. You don't know tomorrow. Well, you know, it seems like in America at least uh, we're full full sprint ahead to reopen everything as it was. Um, but who knows? You don't know. It's a it's unprecedented at this point. So. I'm just playing it day by day, seeing what happens. I don't even know when I'm going to go back to the office. We yeah. haven't heard anything from anyone at our office about anything. Well, yeah, really. you and, and you and I work, both work in Manhattan, and yeah, I've they, my office has also been very like. I mean, the one thing they've been saying is like, well, we're not going to make anyone commute who doesn't want to, even after it reopens. But no one really knows what that means. Like, does that mean we're not going to have to come in every day? Does that mean we're going to? be able to continue just working from home or do we have to come in like once a week or like what's it going to be like and you know the very mixed messages because then at the same time like our office is very big for the amount of people we have so like oh there's plenty of room to social distance and it's like well you just said you're not going to make us commute so what is going on then but uh yeah i don't know and i think what we're leaning toward is like a it sounds like to me what we're going to end up with is a system where like they're going to say you don't have to come in and they're going to say only you only have to come in if you want to. But I wonder if that's not going to come with like uh, management looking down on people who don't come in, you know. So. Right. Yeah. And I don't even as I said, no one has said anything to us um, about any, you know, it isn't hasn't even been like, hey, everyone, we're checking in just saying, you know, we're still on hold. Nothing. Nothing has been said. Now, I I. Um, don't commute to work because I'm well I do I guess commute but my commute is a walk so I'm not in you know if they if they said we're opening and everyone has to come in the office tomorrow you know I don't have to get on a train or a bus or anything like that so that's pretty safe for me Um, but in terms of the larger office where some people are commuting as I'm sure in your office from New Jersey or you know Long Island or wherever a bigger question so i i really have no idea this whole thing has sort of been i i never could have predicted i'll i just remember leaving the office my last day of work was march 11th and in my brain i said oh i'll be back on monday because i have to do some more work and then of course everything closed down i left a bunch of stuff at the office thinking i would be back in a couple days and here we are three months later and haven't been back yeah, I my my thing was much more like they cuz our office shut down I think a week or so before that, like before the official shutdown notice came in cuz I remember when we first closed down, the idea was okay, we're going to close it down, but people will come in once every other week or so and before they officially said like okay, no, no one can come in at all. But like yeah, I, I definitely remember knowing that I was not going to be back for, you know, who knows how long. And, like, it was a very weird feeling. Like, oh, well, what do I want to take home? Uh, I'm just never... I just remember walking around the office and being like, well, I'm not going to see this for a while. It was a very strange feeling. So I had the opposite experience of you where, like, I had that... I was able to look around it and be like, 
yeah, I'm not going to come back here for a while. <laughs> it's not going to happen, probably. But, I mean, I will say the the only positive thing of this fucking COVID shit for my own personal life is working from home. I definitely do enjoy that. I mean, not having to... My commute was awful. It was like one to one and a half hours each way because of how terrible these quote-unquote express buses are from my part of the Bronx. But So I don't have the commute anymore, and I just, you know can throw on something on the TV while I'm working and I like I, I people keep saying this and I actually do think it's true I weirdly do think I get more work done from home than I did in the office because like I don't know you just have less people bothering you and stuff so yeah I think um, we were a very sort of work from home office before this so mine, mine was too there wasn't a lot there wasn't a lot of working from home I found sort of um you know, positives and negatives. One sort of negative is, you know, I live in an apartment by myself. I don't have a roommate or, you know, anyone here. So it has sort of been a uh, lonely few months, you know, at work, my computer is set up, you know, I have two monitors and I have a very powerful computer because I'm often looking at many documents at once. And now I'm working on sort of a smaller laptop. Uh, which makes some of the tasks I do a little bit harder. But I do agree with you that it is a little bit, you know, if I need to do something, I can focus and I'm not worried on so-and-so walking up to me and wanting to talk about who knows what or someone pulling me into something else and then I get stopped on this. You know, when I want to do something, I can sit down and I can say, you know, I got to do it, focus, and there's no distractions. Yeah. Yeah, the computer thing is weird. We have this thing called, like, log me in. Where, like, you basically log into your work computer from your computer. And it's, like, it always looks weird. And, you know, like, I also had a dual monitor set up. So what I've been, I've been doing is just plugging my laptop into my TV so I can have a second monitor, which is a very crude uh, solution. But it does kind of work. Uh, you know, at least I can look up and view another screen when I need to. But, uh, yeah. You know, I have to have a wire running from my bed to the TV, so it's not perfect. But, you know, uh, what you were saying before about, like, moving from room to room to room, i just been, like, I don't know, I like, just set up my bedroom as my room, and I just sit here on the bed all day and work, which is exactly what they say not to do, I think, but... Whatever. Yeah, they always say, I think, the, <laughs> you know, when this first started, there was, like, thousands of articles that are like, I've worked from home, here's everything you need to do, and I think the first one is, like, when you wake up, get out of your bed. Yeah, I just sit on my bed all day. Because the, so I mean I Nicole is still obviously still here, and she she kind of took over the living room as her workspace. So I think we just kind of need two separate workspaces, you know. So. Yeah, so that's a little different. I don't have anyone, so I you know usually come in the living room to start the day, and then you know I'll go if I'm like oh I'm tired of being here in the living room, I go to the bedroom, and then I'm tired of the bedroom, I go to the you know go back to the living room. So it's <laughs> yeah. Nothing but excitement here. <laughs> it's a it's a weird period. One of these things that we'll look back on years from now and just be like, how fucking weird was that? But you know, I would I definitely wouldn't mind if it leads to more permanent work at home stuff. I I know like our our job has been like I, like they said something like they were surprised by how much work people are doing from home. I guess they thought it was going to go much worse than it did. So maybe they'll even consider getting rid of our office or greatly reducing our office because you know my job has also not been in the best financial straits so and manhattan office space is very expensive but you know 
I think a lot of jobs are coming to that conclusion though, not just, you know, you know, a lot of places are doing that. So I wouldn't want to be in office in a commercial real estate right now. It can't be, yeah. <laughs> it can't be a very profitable area. All right. So let's make a weird transition from that over to pro wrestling. So, uh, the first of the five matches that we're going to talk about is your first pick, which is Ayako Hamada versus Misaki Ohada versus Arisa Nakajima from wave on May 14, 2018. Uh, I did not watch Waves, so I, you, you're going to have to introduce it along with why you picked it and all that. I do remember you hyping it a lot at the time, uh, but I never watched it, so I guess I should have because this was pretty awesome. Uh, but before you say anything, I do have to tell you that Nicole, speaking of my girlfriend, she wanted me to inform you that you did not abide by the spirit of the of the rules here because she said this was more like six matches. And she was very annoyed, like, sitting here. Because she was, like, sitting here while I was trying to get through all these. And, because, uh, you know, I'm recording three of these in a row. So, you know, uh, sacrifice had to be made as far as, like, I don't normally watch a lot of stuff in front of her. But, you know, I just had to to get through all this stuff, all 15 matches for these three omakasus I'm recording in a row. And she was like, what the fuck is this? They just keep, like, they keep starting new matches. I'm like, no, this is all one match. And she... She's, she's like, you make sure you tell Taylor uh, that I said he scammed you on the podcast. So I had to deliver that message. Well, you were correct. It is one match. If you look on cage match, it's counted as one match. It is one match because there's only one. I mean, you get to pin, but that doesn't mean you're the winner until you pin both your opponents back to back. Okay. Uh, um, and... <laughs> So, um, the reason I picked this match, you're right. Uh, I did hype it at the time because I think I was on the, the midway half year award episode back in 2018, which by the way, we're not having this year because there's no, there isn't half a year to fucking do it. I don't think maybe I'll do it anyway. Who the fuck knows? Maybe it'd be fun. Two month, two month, the best of the year. (laughs) You know what? I'm going to do it. I just talked myself into it. It'd be fun. What a reversal. Thank you. But anyway, so I came on and I was like, so this happened, you said, what was the date? May 14th? Uh, Yes, May 14th. May 14th. And I think that episode we recorded was sometime at the beginning of June. So it was very close, but what had happened was Ayako Hamada won this match, spoilers, uh, if you haven't watched it yet. And this was a decision match in this one block that the three of them had all tied at the top of the block so they had this match to determine who would go to the finals um, of the catch the wave tournament which is waves yearly uh, round robin tournament that they do uh, and the winner gets a regina de wave which is their top title um, title shot so ayako hamada won this match went to the finals and then during this time it came out that um, there were some drug charges brought up against Hamada she was you know, as many people listening to this probably know drugs are taken very seriously in Japan so she was she left the country she went to Mexico where she is now and Wave immediately went on the Wave Network, which no longer exists. It was their streaming service that very few people were subscribed to at the time. They went through and they wiped every Hamada match from the entire service in about one day. 
So the match disappeared. Um, and I came on the show and I said, it's so good. I looked back, I gave it four and three quarters stars. And I said, it's so great, but you can't watch it because they just took it down and it was nowhere. People hadn't ripped it off the service yet. Some people ripped these things off services so they can have them. People hadn't done it because the match had gone up and like three days later it was off. Taylor, I want to take... tell you, I definitely remember you saying this now. I remember you yeah. coming on the show and being like, the match was awesome, four and three quarters, but you can't watch it. And I remember yes. being like, what the fuck? What's the point of that then? And that was the whole thing because it was taken off. And so I was like, it's so good, but no one can watch. If you have not seen it, you cannot watch it. <laughs> it was like and... although on a show that can sometimes be accused of hipsterism. That was like the ultimate hipsterism. You were like, <laughs> this thing you can never watch was so great. <laughs> so... Um, but anyway, so that happened. I And then during this time of quarantine, during the time of no shows... Wave hasn't been doing no audience shows, but what they've been doing is on their YouTube channel, they've been uploading a lot of their archive. They've uploaded, I believe they uploaded 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019 Catch the Wave tournaments, the whole thing. Um, and if you haven't seen any of those, I highly recommend uh, you go back. It's on their YouTube for free. Tons and tons of stars, you know, big names. Hikaru Shida's in the 2016 one. There's wrestlers from all these different promotions that you can watch, but they uploaded this match, um, I think about a month ago, and it was such a big deal, I actually had people messaging me <laughs> saying, oh my god, they uploaded this match because it's sort of taken on this... Mythical. You know, mythical property mm -hmm. because it was so good, and the people who saw it were like, it's great, but the people who saw it were like, very few, because <laughs> you had to be subscribed to the Wave Network, which almost no one was. Yeah. And then you've had to have watch it in the three days it was on, you know. I will say for, taken down. for a network that nobody subscribed to, the video quality here is pretty great. Yeah, I mean, the it was a good network in terms of the videos always looked good. They were well produced. The problem was for a long time they didn't upload anything. I think there was a six-month span where they just stopped uploading anything. Um, and then they got back into it. So, of course, if you don't upload anything in six months, then people are going to say, why am I subscribed <laughs> to this thing? Um, and then the other thing, of course, is that it's a tiny, I mean, maybe not tiny at the time, because during 2018 it was actually doing pretty well, but it's a Joshi promotion. It's a smaller promotion. There's no English outreach. So it was, you sort of had to go to the site and know what to click, know how to enter XYZ, you know, so the barrier for entry was sort of high in order to see this match. Um, and then it got hyped and then it was gone. And of course, the Wave Network shut down at the end of the year in 2018. So all their stuff went away um, because they had a shift in, you know, in management in the company and the company actually went on hiatus for a couple months. So it was a whole confusion, but I was so happy to see it up. And I knew for this five matches that I had to choose it after you know two years ago coming on the show and hyping it so much and saying you can't watch it <laughs> well, now you can watch it you can go back and listen to that episode go back two years however many episodes that is a hundred episodes or whatever and find what i thought there and then go watch this match and then find my current thoughts so you really get a double double dip here yeah can you believe it's about to be episode 150 of this shit like what the fuck
it's one of those moments where I'm like, wow, I've spent a lot of time on this. <laughs> I don't know, I'm very appreciative of the people who like it, but it's like, wow. <laughs> I'll say many podcasts don't get to 50 episodes, so yeah. 150 is especially impressive. Yeah, it is something. I mean, I guess I must really love doing this, otherwise why, <laughs> why would it have gotten this far? Uh, but yeah, so as far as this three-way match goes... Um, you know, it starts out... So I did not know the rules, first of all. I had no idea. So when it started out with only two people in the ring, the bell rang, I was like, okay, I don't understand what's going on here. Uh, and then as it went along, I kind of got it. And I'm like, okay, clearly somebody has to win, like, X amount of falls. And I didn't get that it was two in a row, but I did figure out that, like, you know, they were going to keep going until something happened. Like I said earlier, Nicole got increasingly angry as these falls kept going on and on and on. She's like, is it over? I'm like, no, it's apparently not over. What do you want me to tell you? I just did a, a horrible imp- impression of Nicole that I hope she never hears. Uh, so Ayako Hamada, she like dominates early with like Matt wrestling into a surfboard and then a really nice head kick and then a pretty brutal looking seated drop kick with Arisa up against the ropes because it's Ayako and uh, Arisa to start. Uh, her kicks here are really something. But Nakajima finally comes back with like a sling blade. She she can't get the bigger woman over for a German suplex. And that pretty much is how Ayako works this entire match. Just like, you know, I am big and you will not throw me around. I'm too big for you to throw around. Uh, there's like a... She, did, she finally does get the German though after she gets like a missile drop kick. And then there's another brief exchange. Um... And then, like, this is the one spot in the match, maybe, where things kind of grind to a halt a little bit, including, like, a weird spot where uh, Ayako just, like, drops down to avoid a dragon suplex, but they don't really do anything else for a second, and then Arisa just finally kicks her. It's a little weird. But things do get quickly back on track with this brutal knockout high kick uh, by Ayako, and then she kills her with a huge power bomb, so that's great. Um, And then how this fall ends is basically... You know, some really brutal kicks by Nakajima. She gets another German suplex. Uh, then Hamada slaps and kicks her way out again. When Nakajima tries a German suplex hold, and she finally pins her with uh, almost like a sit-out Northern Lights bomb, I guess. it was. Does she have a name for that? Do you know? Uh, no, I'm terrible with move names, okay. so I'm the, I'm the wrong person to ask. Okay. Uh, so then we go to Hamada and Misaki Ohada. Uh, and Misaki immediately German suplexes her for two. And this this uh, this little spot, or this little exchange does not go very long. Because uh, Ohada pins her really quick with a fast cradle. But that's probably probably only went like two minutes. But then we yeah, get... Yeah, I think it was, I think it was 228, because I think they put it up. It was something like 228, 232, something like that. Yeah, they would have a showdown later, so... Uh, but then we get Arisa and Ohada, which is what I really wanted to say. And it lived up to the fucking hype. I mean, Ohada, she immediately lariates the shit out of Arisa. And then she tries to pin her with, like, a bunch of flash cradles. And Arisa fires back by just booting her right in the fucking face. And they just alternate dropping each other on their heads with German suplexes that look absolutely brutal. Um, Misaki Ohada then used, like, some kind of funky hole where she just like squeezes her legs with her arms it's i don't know what it's called but it looks brutal i mean it looks really one of the nastier holes i've seen in a while but arisa makes the ropes and then there's like a long fight on the top rope which ends with nakajima hitting a sunset flip power bomb and then a oh one of the I mean, arisa nakajima always does this i think when she does the top rope double stomp but it looks like it should fucking kill somebody i mean 
it was like an absolutely gross looking double stomp from the top rope. Uh, and then we get some more rolling Germans, but uh, Mizaki Ohada kicks out. And then there's a great like flash pin near fall when Arisa tries a half Nelson su- half Nelson suplex, but Ohada like rolls through it into this awesome rolling cradle for a two point nine nine nine. And then Arisa finally pins her with a half Nelson suplex. So all three have won a fall now, and this is where I figured out like I guess it's gonna keep going until someone wins something. I don't I didn't really know, what was, but I just know they were starting with her and Hamada again. Uh, but yeah, that segment was incredible. That might have been my favorite of, of all of them. But uh, I don't know. Do you have a favorite segment? Yeah, I think the third fall, which is what you just talked about, is probably the best one. I think the fifth one is also good. I think there are six total. I don't remember. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. But the fifth one is good, too. But yeah, the third one is definitely the best. And at this time, just for sort of more context, um, Ohada was or ended up did having a great, she had a great year. She was my um, Joshi wrestler of the year for 2018. And then at the end of the year, she retired um, because she was having a baby. Um, She had, for those of you who sort of followed any Joshi in 2019, she had sort of the year that Seri had in 2019, where she had all these great matches that were being majorly hyped. Um, And Seri at the end of 2019, she retired. never be seen again Uh, so maybe the lesson is we shouldn't hype any Joshi wrestlers (laughs) uh, because they always retire at the end of their best years Um, no but she was having a great year and she actually because I looked back at my um, spreadsheets and my tracking for the year um, Ohada and Nakajima had had a singles match I think a month before this I don't remember exactly where it was that I also gave four and three quarters so they were definitely I mean, I think they're the best two wrestlers in the match, not to take anything away from Hamada, who's very good. Um, Arisa Nakajima is my favorite wrestler. Uh, current wrestler, I guess I c- can say, because she's still wrestling. I think she's amazing. And Ohada was having such a good year. Um, two wrestlers who are definitely willing to um, put their bodies on the line and really fight it out to you know, have a good match and to win. So... You know, it also made sense. You said that you were most excited for that fall going into it, um, and I was as well because they're my, you know, two favorites. Yeah. So the fourth fall is another really quick one where Hamada gets like a this like really cool looking like running leg takedown on Arisa into like this cool looking neck hold, and that's a submission. So then we're back to Ayako versus Ohada again, which you mentioned as the fifth, the fifth fall being really good too, and it was like they. They fucking slap the piss out of each other uh, right at the start of the fall before Ayako gets like this massive sit-out powerbomb for two. And then she starts going for this cross-arm powerbomb, but Ohada fights out and like eventually back by drops out of it. And then later on, there's... She basically gets like... So Ohada gets like a really cool like arm-trapped German where she like pulls Hamada's own arm between her own legs it looks really cool but hamada like counters right into the cross arm sit out power bomb that she was going before before but ohada just fucking no sells it and gets right back up which i'm like how do you you no sell it's one of those things that like it sounds absurd but it works in the moment where she just completely no sells this fucking nasty ass power bomb gets right back up and hamada just grabs her though once she runs in right into a death valley driver 
Um, you know, there's a lot more kicking, and then Hamada gets the... I guess it was actually more like a sit-out Michinoku driver earlier than what I, whatever I called it. But yeah, I mean, there's a... You know, Hamada finally hits the, uh, the sit-out Michinoku driver, but Ohada no-sells that too. And we end up in a pretty awesome cradle reversal sequence. And then Hamada goes back to kicking the shit out of her, but then just collapses which is a little weird, but she quickly recovers to kick her head off yet again, and she gives another huge Michinoku driver and gets the pin, and since she she won two straight falls, that made her the winner. So there were five falls in total. That's Uh, right, that's right. But yeah, this is, I mean, I would say the stuff involving Ayako could be a little sloppy, not like it destroyed the match or anything, but that, like, if there was a flaw... That would be it. Uh, but everybody murdered each other, and especially that the third and fifth falls were pretty amazing. So I would go four and a half. That would be my rating. So Yeah, really- I hadn't watched it, obviously, since I watched it two years ago. Um, I agree with you. I think Kamada, the thing about her is that when her stuff really hits, it looks really good. But there were times, like, especially I'm thinking about some of the kicks... Yeah, where, like she would throw a kick and it wouldn't quite land, and it's like, oh, that sort of looks cool, but it didn't really hit. But then she'd do a kick and it would like land square, and you're like, oh, that's a kick. Yeah. Um, so I totally get that. And as I said, I think that she's probably number three, um, in, you know, in this match. But she's being compared to two wrestlers who I think are incredible. So it is, a, you know, a big takeaway. I was thinking right when it started, I was like, oh, this starts slower than I remember it starting. But I think my main memory of the matches were, I think, from like fall three to five, Mm -hmm. um, which obviously is where most of the craziness happens. Um, I don't know. I gave it four and three quarters uh, last time. I'm always reticent to, you know, change my mind on a match I've already seen because obviously it's two years later. I knew going in who was going to win, um, which always sort of changes what you think. I would probably be around a similar ranking, maybe closer to you on a second rewatch, four and a half, than I was two years ago. All right. So that brings us to my first pick, which was Io Shirai versus Kari Hojo on uh, January 17, 2016 in Stardom. Um, you know, just, just kind of with the theme of you being on and wanting to pick a Joshi match, and this was a World of Stardom title match I remember absolutely loving. So figured it would make sense to pick it for a Joshi-focused episode. Uh, so Io Shirai had just won the title uh, from Meiko Satomura at the year-end climax at the end of 2015. And this is the first of her 14 defenses as she would held this title until finally losing it to Mayo Iwatani in June 2017. Uh, that was the time when she was rumored to be going to WWE the first time uh, and then didn't go because of some kind of medical issue. But then she, of course, went the following year in June 2018. And, of course, Carrie Hojo, now sane, would leave in that summer of 2017. Um, I assume you had seen this before, right? Yeah, actually, you sent it to me and I sort of looked at it and I looked at the date and I was like, I think I've seen this match. And I went back in my um, notebook and I looked and I had seen it and I had it rated. Um, I had given it two years ago or not two years ago, four years ago when I saw it, I gave it four and three quarter stars. So it was a very um, highly reviewed match, but you sent it to me and I was like, I'm almost certain I've seen this match before, but you know, there are so many, you know, a number of Kyrie EO 
matches and you know that period now being four years ago i had to go back and refresh my refresh my memory yeah uh so it starts with like a big i mean look i'm not always trying to pick a match that the guest has never seen either so it's not like i kind of figured you had probably seen this so. oh yeah and i was excited to rewatch it because it's yeah. been a while and you know as we'll talk about in a second all the in the last three years the only stuff i've seen from them has been in the wwe yeah so it starts with like a big slugfest right in the middle, including some very hard slaps. Uh, Io gets the better of that, but Carrie comes back with a spear. Uh, Io goes for her trademark German for the first time, but Carrie escapes, and we end up with a, a bit of a standoff after some more trading. Um, there's like a great spot early on where Io does its double handspring to avoid a clothesline, which is almost a little extra, but you know it, it works. I mean, she just like it, it just looks really impressive. And then she comes right back with a drop kick, like all in one motion after the double handspring, and then follows it up with the SIA moonsault to the floor. Um, we then end up on the floor for a bit, where Carrie comes back and tries to spear Eo, but uh, Eo moves and she just fucking slams into the post that she was leaning on. Uh, Eo follows up on the apron with a really vicious looking scoop slam, like she really slams her down the damn apron. So that looked pretty brutal. Um, she and Carrie just continue slapping the absolute piss out of each other. And then Carrie gives Eo a double stomp from the top with Eo draped over the top ropes. Or over the ropes, I mean. But it only gets two. Eo uh, comes back with a really great looking high kick. A springboard drop kick with Carrie on the top turnbuckle. And then finally a really huge crossbody from the top rope to the floor. Where she really gets like crazy air on that crossbody. Like she just leaps so fucking far. Um... And then they brawl up to the orange seats, and Io goes to do, like, the dive off the gray entrance, you know, like, the the entryway from the concourse. It's, it's hard to, always hard for me to describe this unless people know what I'm talking about. But, you know, the, the, the entry arc, basically, from when you're walking up into the, from the concourse onto the seats. Uh, but Carrie basically stops her and knocks her off and does this huge diving forearm forearm off the off the gray uh, concourse thing, you know, herself. And she runs all the way down the aisle and does this huge running spear. And here's where Samurai TV, because it's a Samurai TV feed, because this match, of course, is not on Stardom World. Because why wouldn't a great match like this be on Stardom World, I guess? Uh, Samurai cuts to like a l- cuts a little here to take us right back to the ring. I don't think they cut that much because the the match time still seemed about right. So if anything, they probably just cut them getting back to the ring. But you know, I could be wrong, I guess. Um, and then the, ne- the next stretch of the match is probably the most dull part, but there's still plenty of good like chops and slaps at least. And then there's a whole bunch more stuff. But I don't know. What do you think up to this point when they get back to the ring? I mean, I really liked it. I like both of them. It's funny because uh, a few episodes ago on uh, Jumping Palm Audio, we reviewed a Sendai Girl show with uh, Mako versus Io. It was their big show in Niigata um, that had that match. And it was the first Io match I've seen since she went to WWE. I don't watch NXT, so I haven't seen her wrestle since she left stardom. And I think Part of it is my memory. You know, you think back and you go, of course, she was really good. Um, She's super talented. But when you don't really see it, you just go, oh, yeah, she was good. And that match, the Sendai match and this match are just a reminder to me of how, you know, 
above really anyone else that she was. She has sort of all the attributes that you would want in a wrestler that some wrestlers may be very strong. Like I'm thinking of Io's athleticism and I think of someone like Asuka, uh, not WWE Asuka, um, Japan Asuka, um, who's so athletic. She's, you know, a 10 out of 10 in her ability to do some crazy stuff. Um, but maybe she's, you know, less strong in striking, for example. Whereas Io, I think, is really at the top of her game in everything. She's super athletic, but she's able to go in there with Kyrie and really, you know, exchange strikes and do all these things. So it was really a reminder of how good both of them are and not to discount Kyrie Hojo. And actually, I was thinking in the match that I have seen a little bit of Kyrie in... Um, WWE. I watched WrestleMania this year. I don't know why, because <laughs> I was sitting in my house alone, probably. Um, and it's just one of those things that it was so striking to me that Kyrie in stardom, at least in this period, was always a baby face. She sort of was a fan favorite. But she was always able to go in there and have these type of matches where it's like knockdown, drag out we're going to really beat the shit out of each other and we're going to fight really hard. Whereas you think about WWE and you're a good, you know, I'm a baby face in WWE. It really locks you into that, you know, you're a baby face and you're this one thing. You can't go in there and have a knockdown drag out fight because you're a baby face and baby faces don't do that. Just the way that I think, and this is not only stardom, but really Japanese wrestling as a whole is able to have these people that are multifaceted in, you know, I'm a fan favorite, everyone loves me, but I can go in there and I can fight really hard. I mean, Arisa Nakajima is very similar in that she's very friendly outside the ring, and then she gets in the ring and she's, like, wild, and she's beating everyone up, and she's fighting her partners and everything like that. So that was just so striking to me, is looking back at Kyrie as, as well and saying, oh, yeah, this is what made her... You know, so good to me. EO obviously is great, but Kyrie during that period, she was always my favorite. I always loved her because um, I thought she had such a great personality and she was so good in the ring that it was so easy to cheer for her and root for her and, you know, hope that she would come out victorious in all of her matches. Yeah, I mean, she's a great baby face and a great underdog against EO here. Not that EO's a heel at this point. I mean, she hasn't really formed, she's still like, what? Uh, when did she form Queen's Class? The end of 2016. Yeah, she's still quite a ways away from yeah. that. Yeah, but uh, but she but 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 Carrie is always good at just being the underdog against her. Um, you know the the stretch run where the, where Carrie like power bobs Eo off the top rope and like starts throwing these like really nasty strikes and elbow elbow strikes and slaps like really lays into her, um, and then she starts going with these really awesome back fist chops to the neck which look like i don't know she's channeling kenta kobashi or something and it, it's really awesome and then she hits she hits like five straight of those and then sliding d for a two count and it's a great like comeback after she just got like her ass beat by eo for most of this match and she's like near tears here too so you're just like you feel so bad for this woman just doing everything she can but knowing she probably can't beat eo shirai uh you know it says it says ace on her knee pad you can't beat her <laughs> but then she does a she does like an Alabama slam. She goes up top for the elbow drop, but Eo out of desperation just kind of throws herself into the ropes. 
Uh, she heads up as they have yet another slap exchange on the turnbuckle. Uh, Carrie finally wins that slap exchange and then uh, sends Io to the mat and follows up with the diving elbow drop. But Io, of course, kicks out and the Carrie does a great look of stun on her face. Like, it doesn't look hokey at all. She looks like she's just fucking shocked. Uh, she goes for another one, but Io gets the knees up, which looks brutal because her elbow just, like, collides with those knees, like, so fucking hard. Uh, and Io follows up with the tombstone and a deadlift package German, but only gets two. She gets a tiger suplex, but then rather going for the pin, she follows right up with a moonsault, and that's fine enough for the pin. Uh, this fucking ruled. There's there's a middle portion that was a little more dull than I remembered, but it barely rem- it barely matters when the rest of this match is so fucking great. Just two girls slapping the piss out of each other. Uh, really outstanding fencing stretch on top of the awesome early portion. That's more than enough for me to go four and a half on this as well. Yeah, when I first looked at it, I went back in my notebook and I said, oh, I went four and three quarters. Why did I go four and three quarters and not five? And maybe it was that middle stretch that you were talking about that maybe I said, oh, this wasn't, you know, perfect. So I didn't go um, five. I think I would probably be around the same around the same point, you know, four and three quarters. Unfortunately, when I write these things down, I don't write exactly my thinking because I'd love to know exactly what I was thinking back then to compare it to now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, probably in the same range I was before, four and three quarters. Uh, so now we get into your second pick, which was Nobuhiko Takada versus Gary Albright from UWFI, August 5th, 1992. Uh, UWFI, definitely not a, match I've wa- a promotion I've watched a ton of, so I was really looking forward to watching this. Um, I guess get into why you picked it and what you what your thinking was. Um, I guess I, I mean, it's sort of you know, boring to say, but I really like this match. I actually, um, uh, I'm trying to think when a year ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, there's actually an English series of UWFI called, I believe it's way of the Bushido. I think is the name of it. It's uh, matches from UWFI, but with English commentators, um, and some English translations, um, it's actually available now, or at least some of the episodes are available now on Amazon Prime. Uh, so if you have Amazon Prime, you can check those out. I think there's something like 30 episodes that are usually around a half an hour or so, I believe. Um, but that's when I got into it, and it was a, like you, a style that before I watched those episodes, I was very unfamiliar with. And I found that I was really, that I really got into this sort of style you know, they have this sort of points-based system along with, you know, being able to knock your opponent out or make them submit or things like that. So it's just sort of a different, um, it's a very different style than a lot of other wrestling that you see either today or in the past. Um, I think Gary Albright's a really cool guy, and he's someone who's sort of... Um, disappeared a little bit. I mean, he passed away a number of years ago. But he's someone who he's so good in UWFI as this sort of foreign he's he's like a huge like one solid brick of a man. Um and you know, he was the sort of foreign heel who came in and dominated the promotion for a while until um he was defeated and but then he went on he was in All Japan very briefly but didn't really do much. And he's just sort of the guy, I think, if he came around today, if UWFI had existed today, I think he would be a big deal. I think people would really like him. 
Um, obviously, um, Takeda is uh, someone who is very well known because he did UWFI and he was in New Japan and he did Pride and all of these things. So he's very well known. He was beloved in Japan, but Gary Albright a little less so. And this is sort of the beginning of their story in UWFI where Albright wins. Um, Albright beats him, and then there's the comeback for the rematch that lasts a little while. So it's just a super fun match. I think it's really indicative of how exciting the style is. Um, and it's got a little bit of a different rhythm, sort of all three of my matches. Um, I didn't do this on purpose, but I noticed as I was rewatching them for this, they're all sort of matches that have a different rhythm than sort of standard um, pro wrestling matches. The, the three-way from Wave has this sort of strange, you know, it's a three-way, but there's only two people in the ring at once, and then you're trying to pin two people at the same time, and then this one, obviously, with the points and things like that is very different than sort of the style you see today. Right. Um, as far as, like, this match itself, I mean, look, UWFI, I don't have a good reason for why I haven't watched way more of it, because, like, every time I watch it, I end up really loving it, and it's really a lot of what I love about pro wrestling. I mean, I love striking. I love Matt Rourke and grappling. I love suplexes, and this has all that. So I really just need to watch more UWFIs, what I come away with after watching this. Uh, first note, the American National Anthem gets muted before the match, but not the Japanese one does not. I approve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, UWFI in, in solidarity, I guess. <laughs> Good Comrades, thank you. Meeting the American National Anthem. Uh, but yes, so Albright gets a, like, this fucking wild belly-to-belly takedown immediately, um, which that just will p- become a running theme in this match. Um, and Albright looks awesome here because, like, he's just so much bigger than Takata, but he can also, like, uh, you know, he can really move, too. And he really, like, throws these suplexes like crazy. So I don't, I don't know what the fuck else Gary Albright did in his career, but he is really good in this match, at least. What else did he do? Because I know the name. He was in. He was in. It was in all Japan. I think briefly. He was in a couple tag leagues. I believe. I don't remember who he tagged with, but he sort of was around in the early to mid '90s, I think. And then he came. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up, thinking ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club Slab Pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying hey look at some random cards whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting. 
buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Back to the States and sort of didn't really do much. I think he passed away, I think, in oh, 2000. yeah, it's a heart attack. That sucks. January so he wasn't that old, and obviously this is 92, so it was only eight years later. Yeah. Um, but he, I feel the same way, that it's sort of like this guy, he's so great, and he's so good in these matches with throwing these suplexes. That to me, it's really crazy that even in the eight years that no one else was like, hey, this guy's really good. Yeah. Let's use him. I mean, he was in UWFI for for quite a bit. Um, so he was an accomplished amateur. He had a, a ton of uh, amateur wrestling credentials in the 80s. And then he went. He started in Stampede in 88. And he ended up at UWFI from 91 to 95. And then he switched over to All Japan in... 95 and then like he won the world tag titles twice uh once with stan hansen and oh i wonder what i wonder if that albright masawa triple crown title match is really good i bet it is i don't remember that one at the top of my head but uh let me see just seeing where the hell did he, where was his other tag title when i thought he won oh with stan hansen and with steve williams there you go so that's pretty cool they won the tag titles july 97 it looks like so, um, and then his last, he, you know, he wrestled in all Japan through 99 and then, you know, he was wrestling on a Pennsylvania indie show in 2000 when he, you know, had that heart attack. That sucks. But, you know, great. He was a fucking great wrestler here. Uh, and you know, it's just too bad that he, he never, I mean, you think for all the, all the like Japanese wrestlers that the, or the, not Japanese wrestlers, but the Gaijin in Japan, who were like, you know, getting these shots in America? Uh, I mean, they freaking WWF picked up Terry Gordy in like nine, in late '96 when he could barely move. Like, why you think they would give this guy a chance? He was like six three and like three hundred pounds. But I don't know. I guess he was. Uh, maybe Vince didn't get it. <laughs> maybe Vince didn't get the get the, all the suplexes or whatever. But yeah, I mean, this guy like. Just way way ahead of his time as far as in America goes, you know. Can, like, can you imagine if you dropped him into WWF in like 1997? Like people people would have gone crazy. Uh, but yeah, so both guys. This match starts with like Albright. You know, like I said, he gets that wild takedown. He ends up on top, and they struggle on the mat for a while as Takata almost gets a Kimura, but Albright fights back on top to escape. 
and they end up back on their feet, and you've never heard a crowd react like this for a leg kick. Like, the crowd goes crazy for one leg kick. Uh, and then Takata gets, like, this whole-ass striking combination to put Albright down, but he quickly beats the 10 count. Uh, Takata puts him down again with this huge backdrop suplex, which looks great just because just of how huge Albright is. And he goes for a leg lock, but Albright rolls it right through into one of his own. Um... You know, he comes back with these palm strikes in the corner, then gets this awesome Sambo suplex, which is a, a move I always mark out for. I love the Sambo suplex. And then we get more mat wrestling from there. Um, and then after they get back up, Albright, like, he catches him on a kick and turns it in this huge power slam, which the crowd really, like, goes crazy for. Actually, they, they love that power slam. Uh, and then he locks in a grounded full Nelson, continues just wailing on poor Takata, including two straight belly-to-belly suplexes that look great. And then another, like, uh, long hold on the mat. And then Takata finally comes back with this vicious-looking strike combination. And Albright is counted down for six, but he, he gets back up and recovers. Because, by the way, I should have mentioned this. UWFI matches are, there's no pinfalls. It's ten-count knock, knockdown rules. Uh, submissions, obviously. And there's a scoring system, which they keep updating on the screen, where I guess when a certain guy is, what, knocked down a certain amount of times, right? So the rules are both guys start with 15 points. Right. And if you use a rope break, you lose a point. If you um, are thrown in a suplex, you lose a point. So if you get in a suplex, someone throws you over, you lose a point. And if you get knocked down, that's three points. Okay. So, yeah, um, they keep they keep updating it throughout. So if you, even if you don't know the exact nature of these rules... Like, you'll know, yeah, they show it on the screen throughout. So, I mean, this shit was like, I, you know, it's like, I don't know if ahead of the time is the right word because nobody else really does this now, but it was very unique and very cool. Yeah, and the point system, if you watch a lot of them, they do a lot of playing with, you know, one guy, they do it sort of in this match. One guy goes down and he's got two points left. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you can't be knocked down again because if you get knocked down, you're out. Like, whether you can get up or not because you have no points. Yeah. Or they get down where both got, you know, both guys have one point left. What's going to happen, you know? Yeah. What's going to happen is one guy going to, you know, reach for the rope and lose. Or, you know, sometimes they don't do the points and they just come in and the guy knocks the shit out of someone else or something. Yeah. So there's a great spot where Dakota, like, counters an attempt in German suplex by Albright into a leg hold. And the crowd is going absolutely buck wild for this leg hold he turns it into a Boston Crab uh, but Albright pushes him off but Takata comes back and gets a half crab locked in uh, and then every time you know Takata obviously Albright escapes that every time Albright grabs Takata for the German suplex the crab really goes wild and on the third time when he finally gets it like the crowd is just like you know they think that's it basically but Takata beats the 10 count Albright immediately hits him with another one however and this time Takata can't beat the 10 count, so Albright wins. I was not expecting Gary Albright to win this match, I will say that. Uh, so I was, I did not know that going in, so that was a little surprising. But yeah, this is really fucking awesome. A great reminder that I have to watch more UWFI. Just, you know, like I said, extremely my shit between the hard strikes and all the grappling and the suplexes and stuff. So I would go four and a half on this as well. It's the all four and a half day. But, I mean, all these matches were so awesome. Yeah, the, and the thing I love about it is Takata is the fan favorite, clearly, from the crowd. At that point, he was a guy who was beating everyone, and this you know guy from America comes in that people were like, oh, who's this guy, and beats him. And actually, like I mentioned, um, the way of the Bushido, um, 
show, at least on Amazon Prime, the first episode they have, I think this is the main event of that first episode. And they spend the next grouping of episodes, the whole story sort of of the promotion, the large overarching story is Takata, you know, getting back, he goes back and he starts beating people and they build to this big rematch. They introduce a title for the rematch. So they're like, we're going to do this rematch and now it's for a title. Um, and they have that. I think it takes something like 10 weeks to 10 episodes of this show to get there. And this show is a little bit aired, you know, picking and choosing different events. But all the same, you know, it's shocking. The crowd is so behind him. And then all of a sudden it's like suplex and he's out. And the whole thing is it looks like all match. He's like, oh, he's got this submission. He's going to get the submission and he's going to beat this guy and get him out of here. But then every time Gary gets one of those suplexes, you're like, oh, no, he, he could win. Because if he gets this guy and throws him over, I mean, he could knock him out, which is what he does. Um, so I love it. I don't um, – I guess I didn't even really think about um, a star rating. I would probably be I'll, – I'll be the same as I've been. You've been the same, so I'll be four and three quarters. Um, yeah. I just really love it. I think it's really, you know, some UWFI matches you watch, especially openers and things like that, you sort of go, you know, what? okay, whatever. You know, they have a 10-minute match and one guy, you know, taps out after they roll out, they roll around on the mat for eight minutes and you're like, well, whatever. This to me is really the epitome of what, how good this style can be. And the benefits to having the point system, the benefits to having people who are more are less of a quote unquote pro wrestler, which is maybe why Gary Albright didn't do well because he was more of an amateur, came from more of an amateur uh, wrestling background. Um, but having sort of that style of just a guy who's able to do these suplexes and a guy who's able to lock in these great holds. Um, and if you like this match, I already mentioned it, but really go and check out that Amazon Prime series. They have English commentary, which is really great. You know, it's two guys. They're not the greatest com- commentators you'll ever hear. But I think at least one of them is like a, kara- a pro, a karate expert or a karate professional. I don't know what they call them. Uh, karate practitioner. And they're really able. They really treat it very seriously. They talk about oh, this guy, what is he doing? Oh, this hold, he has to get the leverage here. He has to do this, which really enhances, you know, I linked to the, or I sent John the YouTube link just so everyone could easily watch it. And it's still a great match, even though, you know, the commentators are speaking Japanese. But if you really liked it, go and check out that series. It's definitely worth your time. The episodes are quick. You can get through them very easily, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out. So it's on Amazon Prime, you said, right? Way of the Bushido? Yeah, it's it's on. I think that's what the I think that's what the show is called. I'll have to find it. If I find it, um, I'll I'll tweet it out or I'll send it to you, John, and you can you know tweet it out or use it however you see fit. Sure thing. So my second pick was Yuji Nagata versus Kensuke Sasaki from New Japan Pro Wrestling on January fourth, two thousand four. Uh, you know, before I get into all the history here, because there's a lot of history here. Um, had you ever seen this before? or No. So I had never seen this before. I'm I've seen sort of um, not very much, but I've only seen sort of a couple matches from I guess the period of sort of like 2000 to 2010. We'll just say that decade. 
I've seen some things, but it's been very little. So this was obviously I know Yuji Nagata, I know Kensuke Sasaki um, as wrestlers, but not from this match. So I had not seen this match. Uh, so yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm happy I picked one you hadn't seen. I thought maybe you wouldn't have seen this one. I mean, it's during a period that a lot of people hate, and I get it. But you know, this is one of those matches I like to throw out there to remind people that. You know, not everything from the Enochiism era was bad. I mean, there were still plenty of really awesome matches just in between a lot of questionable booking and a lot of, uh, you know, stuff that wasn't so great. Uh, but yeah, so this is Sasaki's first match, first match back in New Japan as a freelancer after he left the company in the start of 2003 to join his mentor, Ricky Choshu's World Japan promotion, which would not go well, obviously, uh, for many reasons that didn't work out. Uh, I believe the story is he loaned them money and then, like, there was, like, no way to pay him back because the promotion was, like, just a disaster. Uh, You know, like, Choshu had these... Basically, Choshu split up from New Japan, you know, in late 02... I believe they. I don't. I think he got fired. I think they they fired him. I don't think he quit. I could be wrong, but I think that's what happened. And he, he was like very, uh, you know, he was at loggerheads with Inoki over the the amount of shooters in the company and like how they were all going over the New Japan guys. And you know, he really didn't like the direction. Basically, the same kind of reason why, uh, you know, Muto and Kojima and Kendo Kashin, of all people. <laughs> and, like, uh, I think somebody else did. But they, when they all left at the start of 02 to, for, to you know, jump to All Japan. Um, but, yeah, so for many reasons, that the World Japan thing didn't work out. Uh, you know, the company, Choshu, like, he, his design on it was to make it, and when, when you look at the name World Japan, it's like he really wanted to be this, like, new, like, world-class Japanese promotion. You know, like... View it as like equal to New Japan, All Japan, but like you know, he brought in all these foreigners that were not being used in Japan, and it was kind of like a, he was trying to book it. I think as like a throwback to the, you know, to the eighties and stuff. But the problem was like the they didn't have nearly enough like top level native stars, you know, to really stand out. I mean, they basically just had Choshu and Sasaki, you know, they had Kenzo Suzuki, but that did he didn't mean anything. Um, you know, he was just a New Japan guy. They were, like, a young guy. They were kind of pushing before he left. Um, you know, they had Gen- Genichiro Tenru work there, but, like, Tenru at that point was already working everywhere and, like, especially was already very well tied to All Japan. Um, you know, I've been working for New Japan for years. So it, did, it just, there was nothing there to be special and, you know, to make them stand out. And the Japanese, you know, the Japanese wrestling fans basically treated them like another indie, you know, the same way that, um, you know, the same way that Zero One had trouble breaking through, and Zero One broke through on a level that World Japan never did, honestly. But, like, you know, World Japan, the the fans, as far as I can tell, didn't even view World Japan the same level as, like, Zero One, the the clear number four of the big four at that time with Noah, All Japan, and New Japan. I mean, they, they viewed World Japan as just another indie promotion and, like, you know, it was basically like, why should we care about this? So it never it never really caught on. Uh, and so Sasaki left after working their December 7th, 2003 show, and he returned. This is his very next match after his last match in World Japan. So he goes straight from leaving World Japan to returning to New Japan here on January 4th, 04. And he's returning as the hated traitor to battle it out with the man who had become New Japan's standard bearer, 
uh, and Yuji Nagata, because Nagata held the IWGP title for his famous reign where he set the defense record at the time from about mid-02 to mid-03. So he's coming, he's still only like, you know, like six months removed from that reign. And this is Sasaki's first appearance in a New Japan ring since September 02. So a lot of history here. A lot of, like, the, the raw hatred that comes through. They really are trying to push. Like, there really is, like, real hatred here, I think. Like, Nagata probably really is, like, very similar to when Shibata first came back. Like, Nagata probably is really like, why the fuck did you leave us high and dry like that, buddy? And you made the wrong decision. And, you know, I always found the whole Sasaki return thing very weird. Because, like, if you look at his cage match profile and stuff, like, you know, he works New Japan very regularly for, like, the next year and a half, I think. He even holds the IWGP title again, I think, two more times. And, you know, he, he works here through, like, I want to say mid-05. I'm going to look it up because I'm just curious. And, you know, he's gone. But then once he's gone from New Japan, he never comes back. I mean, he, he comes back to this company that, he, that was his original company. And, you know, right from right from jumping, he comes... Yeah, he's here 04 and 05. And then after, it looks like... M- yeah, March 2005, so not even a year and a half. So he stays here for the... He's in New Japan for pretty much the entire year of 04. And then after March 05, he never returns. I mean, the only New Japan appearances he makes for the rest of his career, which goes all the way through 20, you know, 2014, the only New Japan appearances he makes are on, like, uh, two of those you know, all-together shows that really are New Japan shows in 2011, 2012. So from this, from after that, he'll be like a Noah guy, an all-Japan guy, but he'll never, he'll really never show up in New Japan again. So it's very, very interesting. I never really read a good explanation for why that happened. Like, why he would come back to New Japan after jumping and be such a big part of the company in 04 to the point where he won the IWGP heavyweight title two more times, but then, you know, never, <laughs> never, uh, you know come back to the company again for the rest of his career like there must there must have been some kind of like uh you know bad feelings there i guess but it's very weird anyway uh but the match itself uh it starts it's a very short match it's only about 10 minutes long and they start off strong like just slapping the shit out of each other before nagata takes over nick uh kicks and knees and a belly to belly suplex uh, Sasaki comes back with two really hard lariats, which is, of course, always one of his, uh, you know, trademarks. He locks in an armbar, and he refuses to break even when Nagata makes the ropes, which really draws the ire of the crowd. I mean, they already don't like this guy for being a traitor, and then he won't release the armbar. They get really fucking mad. Uh, you know, the, the two guys roll to the floor, where Sasaki, you know, he basically just, like, continues beating his ass, uh, Nagata comes back by kicking a chair that Sasaki was holding back into his face, and then Sasaki blades. And, you know, Sasaki's blade job is very gory, but somehow it ended up being the second goriest <laughs> blade job in this match. Uh, they get up, and Nagata hits this huge explosive suplex on the floor, and then just rips at the cut. It's very gross. He even shoves away uh, a, very, a young red shoes here, so he can keep assaulting him. Uh, Sasaki comes back by ramming Nagata's head in the post repeatedly, and that is the big flaw of this match, because that does not look very good, especially from the camera angle. Like, you can see his head isn't making any contact with the post at all. But it does give Nagata a reason to also blade, and Nagata's blade job is even more gory than Sasaki. Uh, like, it's a fucking... I mean, they're both bleeding gushers, but Nagata's is, e- is even worse. 
Uh, so they're just covered in blood. They just start beating each other's fucking asses with a strike exchange. And Sasaki, like, he puts Nagata down with a lariat as the ring announcer informs us we're somehow only five minutes into this madness, which I couldn't believe. I'm like, how has it only been five minutes? Uh, Nagata gets counted down by Red Shoes with a, a literal pool of his own blood forming next to his head, which is a very gross scene. But he gets back up. Uh, Sasaki chokes him against the ropes and bites the cut. You know, he's gone full heel, heel here, and the crowd just keeps booing. Uh, the referee keeps trying to stop it, but Nagata won't let him. And Sasaki just fucking larries his ass down again, tells the ref to count. As I realized for the first time, it's pro- because it's called a life or death match, this might just be stoppage or ten count only. I don't think it's actually pinfalls, which I always forget because they never go for covers. Uh, the crowd loudly boos Sasaki when he poses on the top rope, which, again, he's just a, just the biggest heel of all time here. Uh, and the, the ref starts counting Nagata down. But Sasaki stops him because he wants to beat Yuji's ass some more. And that, of course, will prove to be his fatal mistake. Uh, he come, But Nagata, because Nagata comes back with a running knee in the corner, a high kick, another kick to a kneeling Sasaki's head, and then he locks in the Nagata lock three. And this gives us the quite gross moment of Nagata bleeding all over his own arm and Sasaki's chest. Like, it's really disgusting. Uh, the Nagata lock three, by the way, is like this grounded, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like a stretch of some kind. Sort of like the regal stretch, right? Maybe? It's a good way um, to... I'm trying to think of what I would call it. Because I can see it in my head, and yeah. I'm like, okay, how can I describe the vision I'm... It's, um... It's... <laughs> I, can't... I also can't even... I'm thinking of something else, but I also can't think of the name of that, so I can't... I'm like, it's like that. But... <laughs> so he, that he basically... Hard. They're on the mat, and he grabs the other guy's arm when the, the other guy's face down, and he pulls the arms back, basically. Like, he pulls the right arm way back, and it's like an arm and chest stretch. It's Best like um, Zack Sabre Jr., he does that move where the person is standing, and he goes behind, and he, like, stretches their arm, and he's, like, looking around. Yeah. It's like that, but it's, like, on the ground. <laughs> but, yeah, it's very, uh, it's very, it looks very brutal here with the bleeding, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I just wanted to make sure he point out what the Nagata Lock 3 is, because he never does it anymore, so it's not a move he does very often. Uh, but yeah, so the, the, this goes on for, like, a very long time, maybe a little too long, as it seems to kill the previously hot crowd a little, but the referee finally stops it, even though Sasaki never quit, uh, which is for sure the right decision, because someone's gonna fucking die of blood loss here. Uh, probably should have stopped it much earlier, Red Shoes, honestly. But anyway, this is, other than a somewhat un- underwhelming finish, this fucking rocks. It's two guys beating the shit out of each other and both bleeding absolute buckets. I don't know what else you could want. Uh, it's one of my favorite 10-minute matches ever. I would go four and a quarter. It fucking rules. Uh, yeah, I have the same complaint, which is at the end is very weird that it goes on. It's like, he's not, he's sitting there, he's not giving up, he's owed, but now we're just going to say it's over. But that's sort of a general pet peeve of mine in all matches is sitting in submissions for too long where it's like the person's not giving up but they're not move they're not moving so we're just sort of sitting here waiting for something to happen but it's been so long that they're probably not going to tap out so what's going on so yeah that would probably be my complaint i really got a kick out of when they were on the outside near the beginning of the match i think nagata throws the chair or kicks the chair yeah and the chair bounces off sasaki and then goes like flying past the camera yeah, that's true. That's a that's a great shot. 
um, where it's like, boink. Um, <laughs> I was also struck by Nagata uh, laying in that pool of his blood, which was almost like that cliche. Like you see in a movie, they're like, oh, this person has been killed. And then <laughs> the way you know it is the blood sort of pools out from them, and you're like, oh, yeah, they're dead. That's a lot of blood. Uh, <laughs> it was sort of that. And also I thought, I was like, oh, that's red shoes. And I thought pretty much by the end of the match he was going to be red shirt, frankly. <laughs> uh, he was wearing a white shirt that got a lot of blood on it, um, clearly, because there was a lot of blood everywhere. Was this the, ma- this, was this the main event no, of the show? No, it was semi-main, I think. Did I mean, they change the mat after this? I don't, that's a great event? question. I don't know. <laughs> this must be the main event, because no one can wrestle it's, on this it's mat. Not, it's not the main the- event. The main event is Nakamura and Takayama. The okay. double well, title match. Well, I they changed the map because, I mean, there's a pool of... How do you go, okay, we got to clean this pool of blood up here. <laughs> Sweep it out. Sweep it out. I don't know what they did. I don't remember. But I definitely know the beta event is Nakamura uh, beating Takayama to... Uh, it was the unification match for the IWGP and the NWF. So... Mm. Um, but yeah, not to be not to be so boring. But I was thinking the same uh, four and a quarter. Yeah, I was thinking the same exact thing. So that that would be mine. There are sixteen matches on the show, by the way. It's not even the semi-main event. It's third from the top. Uh, the semi-main event is Bob Sapp and Keiji Muto beating Hiroshi Tenzan and Masahiro Chono. So amazing. Yeah. So there's two more matches after this. Yeah, but yeah, 16 matches. These Tokyo Dome shows in the Enochiism era used to have like a million... Like, people think New Japan shows are now are long. I mean, they are. But, like, some of these matches are short, too. But 16 matches! Can you imagine going to the fucking arena and being like, I'm trying to sit down for my 16-match uh, show? <laughs> Yesterday on uh, Voices of Wrestling Quiz Night, uh, one of the questions was how many matches were on Big Egg Universe... Um, oh, it's like, and 20, I guess, it's like 20, I right? guess 21, and a bunch of people were like, oh, 15, 14, 16, 18. The answer is 23. Oh, wow. Did he give it to you or no? Was it, were you, it was to be with them one or with them two? Um, I don't remember who, I don't remember who had that question. Uh, who got right, you weren't on the uh, show. Okay. You know, I was, I was just in the, uh, in the chat, but I was like, I know it's an absurd amount. I mean, the show is over 10 hours long, so, um... Yes, 23 matches. So, yeah, they were really uh, cramming all promotions, not just New Japan, were really cramming them on those those big shows. I want to issue a correction to myself. It's actually 15 matches because the Masayuki Naruse versus uh, Tado Yasuda match gets restarted. So that really shouldn't count as two matches. So it's 15 matches. Uh, but, yeah, imagine going to the show and being like, I'm really excited for match number six. Ryusuke Taguchi against Akiya Anzawa. <laughs> Match 6 of 15. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? I can't even imagine what it's like to go to a 15-match card. But, Boy, uh, Match 7 was great. I can't wait for the other five hours of the show. <laughs> it's something. All right. Uh, that'll bring us then to our fifth and final match, which was your pick that won the fan vote. Uh, Akira Hokoto versus Meiko Satomura from Gaia on April 29th, 2001. Uh, this is the second straight Hokuto match we're talking about because um, I I actually did a her match with uh, with Kazuma from LBW. I can't remember her first name. Reiki, I think Reiki. I don't know. But uh, Alan picked that for the Patreon episodes. If you want to hear even more Hokuto content, 
Uh, you can tune into the Patreon at patreon.com slash wrestlingomakase. But, so, Taylor, I, I didn't even really... I always forget that she was still wrestling this late. I mean, I looked it up in Cage Match, and, like, her schedule was limited, but she, she really keeps going through the end of 02, which is kind of crazy given all the injuries she had. But, like, you know, it, it'll look like she went even further, but the other matches from 04 to 06 are, like, just comedy and, like, battle royal spots and stuff and... Uh, All Japan, Dragon Gate, Toriyaman, Kaintai Dojo, and Kensuke Office. I mean, the Kaintai Dojo one is her beating DJ Nira in 19 seconds. So, it's like, that's the kind of thing she's doing after that. But, like, her real in-ring career really went through, like, the end of 02, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, and it's very select. I think it's mainly in Gaia. Yeah. And it's very select. It's not, you know, she's not working any tough schedule. I mean, this is really sort of the, you know maybe not the beginning of the end that's sort of a grim way to put it but you know i don't know i haven't looked i would have to look through all the matches she had but i don't know of any sort of big marquee matches that she had after this point because as you said o2 was really the end of it yeah and she was just wrestling you know sort of sporadically maybe a little bit more than what you would consider sporadically but not often she wasn't working a rigorous schedule certainly yeah, i think it was like 20 matches in one like 20 or 22 or something so it was yeah. pretty it was pretty fail um god does uh young mako look weird <laughs> she really looks like you can see it's her but like wow does she look weird compared to now like 19 years will do that i guess but like she's not one of those people looks exactly the same when from when they were younger to now like she looks really really different <laughs> that's what i first thing i noticed um yeah and it's sort of weird going back now that she has the reputation. I mean, obviously this match is, as I'll say in a minute, is so good. But it's very sort of strange going back, you know, getting so used to Mako now who comes out with the big robe and comes out with the music and is very, you know, sort of stoic and is everyone's like, oh, she's a legend. To see this Mako who's, you know, only six years, I mean, not a rookie, really, six years into her career, but certainly not the presence that she is nowadays um and then so like so i guess tee up the match like what was the deal here just mako trying to beat the legend that's pretty much all there's to it yeah i don't know what exactly the story was i know i i believe if i have my timeline correct um a, a little while back you know she was part of the sort of younger class of Gaia. She had debuted with the promotion in 1995 that uh, Chigusa Nagayo had trained um, a number of wrestlers prior to the opening of the promotion. They all had their first match on the first show, which was in April of 95. This 01 show is the sixth anniversary show um, for the entire promotion. So she was very young, but they had had opportunities to wrestle sort of the more veteran wrestlers she had had a match against Aja Kong, I believe maybe the year before, if I have my dates correct in my head, where it had sort of been the very classic, you know, Aja Kong is Aja Kong, Mako fighting hard, you know, getting some hope spots, getting some comebacks, trying to beat her, but in the end sort of, um, you know, being defeated, as you would imagine, facing up, you know, facing Aja Kong. That match also is, I believe, uploaded on the Gaia Japan YouTube, which you can also check out. That's another great match. The crowd is really behind Mako during this match. But I sort of see it in my head um, 
as sort of a continuation of this younger wrestler continuing to rise to gain the ability to, you know, beat the more veteran wrestlers in the promotion. Why is he? That was a great question. How how and why does a dead promotion have an official YouTube? Well, interestingly enough, and part of the reason why I chose this uh, match. So originally, before all these lockdowns and quarantines and things happened, um, Gaia Japan was going to be revived, um, at least for one night. They were going to have a show at Corican Hall in April of oh, this yeah, year. Oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. Uh, they had announced it because at that point, it's their 25th anniversary because they started in April of 95. Um, they had announced a couple matches with sort of, um, you know, Chigusa Nagayo was the founder of Gaia, and she now is um, the head of Marvelous. So there was going to be a, a match with some Marvelous talents. Um, sort of underneath and then there was going to be a main event that was sort of more it was the current wrestlers so like Takumi Aroha was in it and then also bringing back um, some of these old Gaia I mean Chigusa was going to be in the match Toshi Uematsu who wrestled for Gaia was going to be there I don't remember exactly what the match was but they had started to announce it then obviously the lockdown happened um, and they postponed the show. It's going to happen next year, I believe, in April at Corican Hall. Oh, okay. That's um, awesome. But the whole thing was they were bringing it back, so they said, oh, the whole thing, we're celebrating, you know, 25th anniversary, so they started a YouTube channel, and they've spent the last few months uploading select uh, matches from really across the entire 10-year run of the promotion. The promotion ended in 2005, closed in 2005, um, for a variety of reasons. So you're um, looking. So this this YouTube thing you sent that I put up is the official YouTube. Yes, so. it is the official Gaia. I don't know exactly how the company. You know, I don't know who has the rights to this or who exact. You know, if it's, you know, sort of the rights to some of these promotions is very weird. Is it yeah. owned by the TV stations? Is it owned by whoever? But it is the official Gaia channel. Um, they are uploading matches. I think they have a ton of matches up already that okay. you can. You know, see a lot of different matches from all their wrestlers. Um, they had started originally by posting matches of the wrestlers they had announced were going to be on the show. They had Uematsu, they had um, uh, Sakura Hirota, um, I believe, was also going to be in the match. People know her nowadays as a comedy um, wrestler, but she started as a rookie. Um, in 95, so she had a number of matches there. Sugar Sato is another one that they had uploaded some matches. And, of course, they have a lot of legends. They have Hokuto, they have Nagayo, they have all these, you know, Aja Kong. They have all these legends also involved. Mayumi Ozaki was part of the promotion. You can, so. see, you can see Mayumi on the floor during this match a lot. Yes, with um, yeah, with her and Kaoru and Police. Yes, um, Police was there, too there as well you know <laughs> um so yeah it's cool that this is from an official youtube because you could tell because the quality was really good so yeah it's really good quality and i've been really happy you know it's so great to be able to get this sort of older promotion in a way that's easily accessible in good quality you know you think about all the joshi promotions over the year that have closed i mean i've been looking up um digging around all japan's all japan uh, women's all Japan women, yeah. yeah. You know, the big shows are on YouTube, you know, Big Egg um, and things like that. 
But you go day to day and you're like, hey, except for All Japan Classics, you go and you're like, hey, what was on this day? I mean, that footage is a mess. Yeah. There's footage out, oh, this takes place in 1981. Well, when in 1981? Well, no one knows because the person <laughs> who uploaded it didn't say. So uh, this takes place at some point in 1981, but who knows? So it's great to have it in a very organized fashion, in high quality. I, you know, fingers crossed, I hope that they could do that with other, you know, shuttered promotions or, you know, older promotions. I mean, Gaia, for people who don't know their 90s to mid-aughts Joshi, I mean, this is, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to call this the number two Joshi company, right? Like, they were right behind All Japan Women's for pretty much the entire Oh, run. yeah, yeah, yeah. They had, um, I mean, Nagaya was a huge star who had been, you know, they had the age limit in All Japan, so she had been quote-unquote forced to retire i guess forced is the right word because they had you couldn't wrestle past the age of i think 26 yeah uh, so she had retired she wanted to keep wrestling so she founded this Chigusa, promotion Chigusa, by the way one half of the beauty pair no 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 oh. one half of the uh uh crush gals the crush gals i'm sorry <laughs> the one after the beauty pair beauty pair is is the forerunner yes yeah. to, to them they're sort of the grandmothers i guess you would call them yeah <laughs> My bad. Um, it's her. So and, she her was a huge. Her and minus Oscar, right? That's the question. Yes, who yeah. appeared in, who came to Gaia, and that was the big program, um, for some of the time was that, uh, Nagayo and Oscar went up against each other. That was the big feud, and then of course after that feud was done, they ended up doing some teaming together, um, and of course they had all these rookies. It's it's also probably most known by the general wrestling fans. There was a documentary uh, film that was done called Gaia Girls, which um, I don't even know where it played, if it was at festivals or things, but it was sort of a behind-the-scenes look at the training that was being done. Um, and some of the training that was being done was very tough. Um, if you're a very sort of squeamish person, I don't know that I would recommend searching out that documentary. It is available for free online. You can find it and watch it it's only about an hour and a half but it's about the the sort of strict and brutal training me methods that nagayo was using to develop these you know wrestlers in the dojo they had people who come in they say i really want to be a wrestler and they you know fail out and you know they're failures and it mainly follows one wrestler who kept failing her protest and she kept trying she was not succeeding so it's sort of follows her journey um, but you see Mako's in it, um, Sakura Hirota's in it, all the sort of big names in the promotion at the time are in it. It's very interesting, but at times a difficult watch. Yeah. I mean, that's one, like, you know, people bring that up a lot. as like, you know, how are these wrestlers so great? And one of the answers is, unfortunately, because, <laughs> because they kind of have to be. Otherwise, you know... I mean, this, this is kind of what happens. I mean, they get the shit beat out of them, and then if you get the shit beat out of you, you're probably going to eventually be pretty great at whatever you're uh, trying to do, you know? So Yeah, it was either, you know, get good or get out. And I, I've said this on Jumping Bomb Audio, but now, as I mentioned, Nagayo is in Marvelous, and I think the class that she's developed there um, with Maria and Mei Hoshizuki and Makoto Shindo, I think they're the best, some of the best rookies in all of wrestling. I don't know if her methods have changed. I don't know if she's softened, but she's still doing something right because they're excellent pro wrestlers. So I don't, you know, I don't know what the behind the scenes is like, but, you know, Nagayo is one of the great, to me, one of the great 
Joshi trainers in the in the history of Joshi. Yeah, and I want to say like it's not like the men's uh, Japanese promotions didn't also have very brutal training cultures too. I mean, you know, people died in the in these dojos. So, uh, okay, so this match starts with Mako at the bell, just beating Hokuto's fucking ass with these kicks. I mean, just like killing her, and then Hokuto fires fires back with these slaps, and the slaps are going to be a major feature in this match and I guess it's kind of a recurring feature in all these matches but man these slaps are brutal probably the most brutal in any of these matches um she also just drops her right on her head with the one of the sickest death valley drivers you'll ever see and this is all right at the beginning of the match she then goes for like an arm bar or something and then uh when she can't get it she just she she settles for kneeing Mako in the head which uh looks very brutal and then Mako comes back with a German suplex, which Hokuto no-sells. She ducks a kick from Mako, but then takes one to the back. But then when Mako goes to Iris whip her, she just slaps her in the goddamn face again and again and again and again. And this is where I just wrote, holy shit. Because it's like, she's just whipping this girl's ass with these slaps. It's really brutal. Uh, Mako come, tries her own Death Valley driver. But Hokuto counters into some kind of a choke with her legs. But Mako gets out quickly and just starts leveling her with uh, European uppercuts. And I wanted to describe all this stuff in detail because all of this is in the first five minutes. I mean, she like, you know, basically Hokuto tries to go to the top rope. Or, I'm sorry, Mako tries to go to the top rope. Hokuto stops her from going to the top rope by pulling her down hard by her singlet. Like, it looks like her landing sucks. When she goes up top, Mako violently pulls her down by her hair. And they do that like two more times. They just keep pulling each other down as hard as they can. And when Hokuto finally goes up again, Mako stops her with two kicks, including a flipping back kick right to the head. And this match is so crazy. Uh, and like I said, they packed all this action to just five minutes, with, uh, you know, including with like a, a, a Fujiwara armbar towards the end of that five-minute mark. And then they rolled the, the floor finally. Um... You know, there's just so much stuff going on in this match. There's a, you know, there's like, Romeko hits like this Northern Light suplex for two, and then a German suplex. She goes for like some kind of like body splash, but Hokuto puts her legs straight up, and Mako practically like bounces off them violently. It looks like so much worse than most of those like knees up, legs up on a dive spot. It looks like it just kills her. Uh, she then drops her right on her head with an inverted Northern Lights bomb for two, and she follows up with an equally vicious backdrop, but again only gets two. Uh, Mako finally comes back by kick by grabbing her leg on another kick, kicking her inner thigh, which you don't really see that often, and it like puts her down right away on her butt, which is a very unique spot, and then delivers like a really brutal head kick. Uh, she waits for Hokuto to get back up and just goes for the flipping back kick again, but Hokuto dodges it and fires up with the slaps again. Uh, Mako just keeps getting back up, but Hokuto just keeps slapping her down. Uh, and then after the fourth one, she kicks out at one. Uh, and they trade near falls, but Mako suddenly jumps up and hits another head kick. Um, and then, you know, if you want to nitpick, there's a little too much laying around after that to the point where I wish they, I kind of wish they had finished with that last little flourish I just described. But after both recover, Mako hits another Death Valley Driver for two, gets another head kick for another two count. 
another Death Valley Driver for another two count. Uh, Samako returns to the armbar uh, as someone tries to, like, dive into the ring to save Hokuto in the background. Do you know who that was? I couldn't... Yeah, it was Ozaki. Okay, it was Ozaki. Ozaki diving in the ring, and I think Kaoru and police hold her back. Yeah, it's such a great little... It's such a great little uh, moment. Uh, somehow Hokuto makes the ropes again. Uh, Mako kicks her again, but Hokuto bridges to kick out. Uh, and then Hokuto just keeps coming back with yet more slaps, and then just fucking falls on top of her for two, and she's just com- almost completely dead here, even though she continues fighting. And she finally hits a Northern Lights bomb, but both girls are down. We get a double ten count, but somehow Mako is the one to get back to her feet, and Hokuto doesn't, even though it was her move. Which, I thought that ending was so awesome, and it makes perfect sense after she just, like, got her head dropped on those Death Valley drivers over and over again and had her head kicked off. It's like, yeah, I guess she would be uh, a little unable to <laughs> to get back to her feet, even after her own move. I mean, it, it makes total sense to me, and it's such an amazing finish, but, like, these, these fans are just screaming, like, just screaming in pure noise for this. It's just really one of the most amazing final scenes you'll see. Uh, I went back and forth on four and three quarters or five. I'm going the full five. I think it was... Uh, just definitely one of the best matches I've ever seen, and you know, I I don't I really should have watched this a lot sooner, I guess. But it's an amazing fucking match, with just you know the crowd reaction at the end. Like I said, it's one of the more incredible crowd reactions you'll ever see, and it yeah, it's just like they they fucking kill each other. They just brutalize each other in this match, and you know both their performances, uh, you know the the alternating between selling and just like pure no-selling savagery is just like, it's so perfect. It's absolutely perfect. So, five stars. Yeah, I'm also five stars. I love the thing about, I I just love the story. Um, I mean, I don't only love the story of the match, but I love that the story of the match is Hokuto coming in, sort of, it sort of feels to me like she's thinking, okay, I'm the veteran. This girl, she's only been wrestling for six years. I can handle this. She's slapping her, disrespecting her. It's sort of like, yeah, I'll get, I'll get through this, and then it keeps going, and then it's sort of like, oh, this is, you know, I'm getting tired. This is taking longer than I thought it would. Um, you know, what, what the heck's going on? And then all of a sudden, it's, oh shit, I could lose this match, and you have um, Ozaki diving, you know, Ozaki diving in the ring to save her, or at least try to save her from a, from a, I believe at that point it's a pinfall, and then you're like oh shit, Mako could win and Mako's going for pins and she's not getting in. She's like, oh, I was so close. And all of a sudden, the, all the momentum is sort of the other way from the beginning of the match. I love the end of the match is so great. I love um, Hokuto trying to get up using the ropes. She's leaning on the ropes and Ozaki is outside trying to push her to her feet. She's leaning up trying to push her and she can't get her and she sort of falls awkwardly down. And then, of course, Mako happens. Mako bursts into tears. Everyone comes running in the ring. Um, to me, really amazing. I always think, you know, nowadays, if people, even if they've never really watched Joshi, if they're not a fan or they don't know anything about it, they've never gotten into it, a, a lot of people know the name Mako Satomura. And they say, oh, she's a legend. You know, she was in the Mae Young Classic in WWE. She got a lot of exposure there. She sort of, her reputation precedes her. But there isn't, um, there isn't a lot of talk about 
you know, what sort of why? What sort of built this legendary, you know, figure in Joshi wrestling? And this is one of those things. This is one of those matches. I mean, it's an incredible match. It's still sort of quote unquote early in her career now that we know that she's had a 25 year career. Um, so I just love everything about it. It's such a great story. I mean, the action is absolutely crazy with them really just beating on each other the entire time. A great, really unique finish that you don't see, especially in a match. You know, you talk about a younger wrestler versus a veteran, and you say, okay, the younger wrestler beats the veteran. How does it end? Most people probably think, oh, it ends on a roll-up. It ends on a fluke pin. You know, they get a La Magistral cradle or something like that, and they happen to get a pin. Here it's a knockout with Mako standing on her feet and Hokuto, you know, laying on the mat in the corner. Um, so, yeah, it's an easy five to me. Just an incredible um, match. And as I said, sort of Hokuto's last great hurrah in terms of, you know, the matches after she had matches after this. But to my knowledge, at least off the top of my head, I can't think of any um, sort of legendary matches like this one that she had after this point. So sort of her last hurrah as Mako continues her rise to what would become a very, um, you know, a legendary status. So, and I also should say, put Mako Satomura in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Come on, people. Yeah, for, she's she's been so fucking good for so long, and she has... She's wrestling in front of a huge crowd here. I think the crowd is, like, something like... It's in the thousands, I know. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that at times they drew 6,000, 5,000, 7,000, things like that. I mean, if you want to take issue with her drawing, I get it, but she's been one of the best wrestlers on the planet for 20 years. She... Um, and she had an immense positive influence on wrestling. Without Sendai Girls, who the fuck knows if we'd even have Joshi at this point? At the yeah. very least, it would be it would be in a, lot, a much lesser position. So I don't know. I think she, I think she's a Hall of Famer too. But you know, she's one of the ones where I get the argument against her at least. But like, I would put her in. But so uh, yes, yeah, just an incredible match. Just as a little factoid of trivia, I believe. That, you know, Ozaki and Kaoru and um, Police are all at ringside. I believe at this point Hokuto was in Oz Academy. For those who don't know, you hear Oz Academy and you think of the promotion. But Oz Academy started as a stable in Gaia, Japan. Um, and then turned into sort of a training promotion. And then closer to the end of Gaia, Japan, turned into a full-blown promotion. That it still is today. But it started as a stable. That stable still exists through many memberships and is now, I believe, called Sekigun, although it's been called Ozaki-gun as well because Mayumi Ozaki is obviously the leader of it. Yeah. It has to be one of the longest stables in wrestling history. Like, longest lasting. Oh, yeah. I can't even think of anything that would come close to it. Yeah. So... All right, uh, Taylor. I guess that wraps us up here. Uh, thanks for coming on. Why don't you plug the plug the show, buddy? Yeah. So I have a. Uh, I guess it's still considered brand new podcast called Jumping Bomb Audio. It is me and Aaron Bentley, who you may have heard on many other wildly successful podcasts, uh, and we cover the entire world of Joshi. We do all the news. From the past weeks, we cover 
pretty much we try and cover at least a little bit every show that makes air. Um, some we do in-depth match-by-match reviews. Some we just do the reviews in general of the show. We do previews of upcoming big shows. We give you match recommendations, and we tell you um, what is airing, what you can look forward to on things like Samurai or Nico Pro or the various Joshi streaming services that are increasing tenfold. Um, currently, because there's not a ton of wrestling going on, we have been going back and covering the history of stardom from the very first show. We're covering it show by show and also talking about what happens in between each show so you get a little bit more flavor than just the match reviews uh, but once the empty arena era ends we will be going back and covering all of current joshi so if you're a new joshi fan it's a great way to get into it to learn about these different promotions and wrestlers and if you are really deep into joshi and you already know a lot we cover it all so you will be able to to hear about whatever your favorite promotion is. So check it out. The Twitter is J Bomb Audio. Jumping wouldn't fit. Ah, okay. You can believe it. Jumping wouldn't fit. So we are J Bomb Audio on Twitter. Check it out. Give it a listen. We have our next, depending on when this drops, this episode drops, our next episode actually will be uh, released tomorrow where we will be covering a few more starting shows. I think this and J Bomb will be the same day. I'm going to put this up Monday. So great. So it'll be the same day. You'll have two podcasts with me. If you really like the sound of my voice, <laughs> you get double you get the double treat. We'll be covering two stardom shows as well as talking about all the scheduling of all of these promotions starting to uh open back up and do fan shows again. All right. Uh thank you, Taylor, for coming on for I don't remember the number of <laughs> appearances, but uh we always appreciate it and you know, we'll see you again soon. Uh see you soon. Anyway, so thank you, as always, for listening, everybody. Um, our next episode is going to be a, another Patreon-exclusive episode, so number 150. If you're looking for that one, it'll be, which is a big milestone, which I'm very excited to do, but it'll be me and the captain, Mr. Rich Kreich, from the Voice Wrestling flagship. Um, I'm recording that with him tomorrow, but it should be going up on the Patreon probably Friday. So, you know, like five days from now or something from when this goes up. So Rich and I, we have a cool, really cool set of, mat- of matches uh, planned. We're doing the New Japan UWF elimination match. Uh, we're doing the um, Tanahashi versus Minoru Suzuki King of Pro Wrestling 2012 that won match of the year. Uh, we're doing Steve Austin versus Bret Hart from Survivor Series 96. And then Rich also picked that really famous click tag match uh, with Nash and Shawn Michaels against... Uh, the one, two, three kid and Razor Ramon from 94. So it's an interesting set of matches. I think you'll enjoy it. And, uh, you know, me and Rich on the Patreon. So if you want to hear that one, you have to go to patreon.com slash wrestling omakase. You get to hear the Rich episode when it goes up. Our next one, you get to hear the last episode with Alan Farrell. Uh, we talked uh, battle arts and world of sport and more Akira Hokoto and, uh, you know, a bunch of other stuff. So it's a really, really cool episode. Uh, Tanahashi and DDT, we talked a little bit about that. So it's, yeah, fun episode. So catch that one on the Patreon as well. The Tanahashi Okada series, uh, you know, all the doing all the Tanahashi Okada matches in order. Uh, so definitely check that out. Uh, Patreon.com slash Wrestling Omikase. In the meantime, 
Thank you, as always, for listening. Oh, the next free episode will be me and Kay Slow from Open the Voice Gate, which, again, also a bunch of really cool matches, so that'll be that'll be another really fun five matches episode. So definitely check that one out, too. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at WrestleOmakase. Wrestling, of course, would not fit. And, folks, thank you, as always, for listening, and we will see you next time.